Lord, we just thank you for this evening. We ask you to bless this time as we look at your word and guide and lead us into what you want to see from this section. And we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Haggai, chapter 2, starting at verse 1. In the seventh month, in the 21st day of the month, came the word of the Lord by the prophet Haggai, saying, Speak now to Zerubbabel, the son of Sheatiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Joesedek, the high priest, and to the residue of the people, saying, Who is left among you that saw the house in her first glory, and how do you see it now? Is it not in your eyes in comparison as it, is, as it was nothing? Yet now be strong, O Zerubbabel, saith the Lord, and be strong, O Joshua, son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and be strong, all you people of the land, saith the Lord, and work, for I am with you, saith the Lord of hosts, according to the word that I commanded with you when you came out of Egypt, so my spirit remains among you. Fear you not. For this saith the Lord of hosts, yet once it is a little while, and I will shake the heavens and the earth and the sea and the dry land, and I will shake all the nations, and the desire of nations shall come, and I will fill this house with glory, saith the Lord of hosts. The silver is mine, the gold is mine, saith the Lord of hosts. The glory of this latter house shall be greater than the former, thus saith the Lord of hosts, and in this place will I give peace, saith the Lord of hosts. We're going to stop there. Uh, God has a lot to say during this period of time. So we start here. The first part was he was encouraged. He was telling them, build this thing. You're supposed to have been here. You haven't built the temple yet. Uh, that's what you came here to build. Why have you built your houses? Why are you building your businesses and you have not built God's house? Uh, now, I'm sure that when I read the seventh month and the month, everybody knew exactly what was going on at that period of time, right? On the seventh month, on the 25th day, is the Feast of Tabernacles. So they are in preparation for the Feast of Tabernacles when he's giving this proclamation to the people. This is the celebration of the wandering into the wilderness and God's provision for the people. Uh, the Jewish people on the Feast of Tabernacles will spend a week with lean-tos outside their houses and, and live outside in, in, on, in lean-tos for a week in celebration of the remembrance of the wandering in the wilderness and the provisions of God. Uh, it is also going to be the, the time of the return of the king. So every time they celebrate the Feast of Trumpets and the Feast of Tabernacles, they think about the king's return. Uh, there are seven major feasts in, in, in Egypt, uh, Israel rather, Four of them have already been, been fulfilled. Passover, uh, unleavened, uh, unleavened bread, first fruits, and Pentecost. Jesus fulfilled all of those when, when he sacrificed himself, came back from the dead, and then the church started on Pentecost. The three feasts of the Jews that are left are tabernacles, trumpets, and uh, Yom Kippur, or the Day of Atonement, when they fully get there. And those are all yet to come. And they're called the spring feast and the fall feast. And many people do believe, and I'm one of them, that Jesus will probably fulfill each one of his major events yet to come on those feast days. I'm not going to, God tells us we don't know the times or the seasons, so I'm not going to put a hard thing on it. But he fulfilled everything on the right days the first time. I think he's going to fulfill everything on the right days. Uh, the Yom Kippur is his rule, is his rule and, and atonement for Israel, basically. 
So we have all of this coming up, and this feast that he's, that he's preparing this message on is for uh, tabernacles. And they, they're, they're working on setting things up. We are one month and 25 days from when this first, first started our, our prophecy, because he started the prophecy on the first day of the the first day of the month, the sixth month of the first day of the month. So now we're uh, uh, one month, 25 days later, because they have 28-day uh, months. And so the Jewish people, if you're not aware of this, have a 360-day calendar for the year. And what they do is they have a full leap month, one time every 5 to 13 years, depending on when they get out sink. Uh, so you get an entire extra month one year. Uh, it is kind of confusing and what they do is they add the first month. So you have the first month and the first month. So you have two first months in the year of the leap year. Uh, and what they do is, you know, if you're aware of the, the celebrations are always floating around for their Passover and all of this stuff. It floats around because it's matched to their calendar. And when the feasts start getting out of sync too early in the spring they add the extra month and push them back to the end of the spring <laughs> slowly work their way back to the beginning of spring and they put a first, first month in and they've got a large you know calendar and everything they know exactly astronomically when these extra months are going to be filled are thrown in um, and it's not like ours where it's one every four you know one day every 24 uh, every four years it fluctuates and they just add an entire extra 28 days into their calendar to to match up um, so it's kind of a funny way to do things at least from our perspective they have no problem with it it's it makes sense to them to have one you know 12 12 months and then one year you have 13 months uh, but so he's in this process he's he's getting ready to make this prophecy in the feast of tabernacles uh, coming is coming up and again, this is one of those little things where we as Gentiles don't really understand the significance. We read this, I go, so what? It's the sixth, it's the seventh deal. <laughs> you know, but in this case, he's making a really big deal on it. He says, we're getting ready to celebrate this. And I think he's making a point to them. We're ready to celebrate one of the major feasts that we're supposed to be celebrating in the temple. You haven't built the temple. The temple's not built. I think he's making a point here in, in this process on it, that we don't necessarily fully follow. And so because the feast days were supposed to be celebrated with the temple. This is why Orthodox Jews today are still eagerly anticipating the day that that temple gets built in Jerusalem so that they can celebrate the seven feasts in the temple where they belong. They can offer their sacrifices for forgiveness of sin because they know, the Orthodox especially, know that they cannot be forgiven by doing good works. And they're wanting to be able to offer the sacrifices of forgiveness and so this is a big deal this is why it's such a big deal you'll hear it oftentimes the Jewish people will talk about Jerusalem the temple being rebuilt they've already picked you know started building the tools for the celebration and the offerings they've they've uh, been training the priest on how to do things when they finally get this temple uh, they're all need is somebody to give them permission to build the temple and right now the Dome of the Rock sits on the, on the Temple Mount, but not where the temple originally stood. Uh, 
So what will probably happen, and I fully anticipate this, when the Antichrist comes in and gives them permission, they're going to put, just as it's told to us, and he's a great wall on the Temple Mount, and because Ezekiel was told to make but not the court of the Gentiles. He said it's been given, God said it has been given to the Gentiles. So I believe there will be a wall put across there and they will build both. There will be the dome of the rock on the one side of the wall and the temple on the other side. And I could be wrong, but just looking at that, the place of the temple is nothing's built on it. And there's room for them to put a new temple in its place. They separate the two, two religions together. Ezekiel told us not to measure the, the Gentile court because it was already given to the Gentiles. And it makes perfect sense that we'll put a wall there and say, just put two temples up here. Uh, so I think that's what's going to happen. It won't matter to us because we'll be gone during that period of time because the tribulation is going to be when they build this temple. Because the Antichrist will give them the permission to build the temple, he's going to look like their Messiah. He's going to promise them peace. He's going to let them build their temple. And then he's going to step up in that temple and say, I'm God, me. Is there a sacrifice of pig in there too? Uh, well, and Antipas did that already. Okay. And it's quite possible he will, but he's going to stand up and say, I'm, I'm God. And at that point, God opens their eyes. They recognize that they've been lied to. Because spiritually now he opens their eyes and they flee from the city. And that's when Jesus said, pray that it's not winter when that happens, or that you'll be found with child so that you can get out of the city quickly. Because at that time, they've rejected the Antichrist and Satan is going to come back with them with a vengeance. He had them tricked. They were, they were all set to be his because he was put, pretending to be the Messiah. All of a sudden, God opens their eyes and he's going to come at them with a huge vengeance trying to destroy them. And it says that if God hadn't protected them, they would have been wiped out. And we're seeing all these people headed back to Jerusalem. Many of the Jews want to go back to Jerusalem. And as, as anti-Semitism starts kicking up more and more, we're going to see more Jews wanting to go back to Jerusalem. That is their home. You know, this is the one place where a Jew can, be, can go and be accepted as a Jew will be Jerusalem. And so as we see more, and we're seeing anti-Semitism rising all around the world, which is one of the many reasons we're going, I get excited. I'm going, God, how close are we to the end times? You're driving your people back home. Many of them want to go to Jerusalem. Many of them want to go to Jerusalem just to have Passover in Jerusalem where it's supposed to be, whether there's a temple or not. They just want to go celebrate where, where it is supposed to be celebrated. And they're looking forward to that day and many of them will say I want to go to Jerusalem most of many in America just want to go there to visit but even in America anti-semitism is kicking up and becoming a big problem in Europe it's a huge problem in most of Asia it's a big problem those places are being driving the Jews back home and it's picking up in America which will see them wanting to go back home they want to go where their homeland is and where they're going to be accepted and here we have Haggai saying during the, t during the Feast of the Tabernacle, uh, what's wrong with you? You haven't built this temple. We're supposed to be, <laughs> we're supposed to have a place for, for this, this event to happen. And he preaches to Zerubbabel. And if you remember, Zerubbabel is the grandson of Je Jehoiachin. And Jehoiachin was the last king of Judah. Uh, 
And this his grandson. He's not coming back as king. He's being sent back as governor. But he is of the right line to be in charge of the nation. And the other part of the message is to Joshua, the son of Jehoshadak, who is the grandson of the high priest when they went into captivity. So remember that when they go into Babylonian captivity, this is 70 years plus a couple years that they've been supposed to build that they've been since they went into captivity. They were sent into captivity for 70 years because they did not, God told them, you're going into captivity because you missed 70 Sabbath years for the land. Every seventh year they were to not plant crops and God said, I bless the sixth year. You'll have plenty of crops to live for two years. And you let the land stay fallow on the, on the Sabbath year. So every seventh year was a Sabbath year. And he says, you've missed 70 of them. So I'm going to make the land be fallow. And I'm taking you out. So he sends them into captivity. The land lays fallow. And then he sends them back to, to it. And that's what he told them. You'll be gone into captivity for 70 years. So there are people that are going to be just old enough to remember the first temple, Solomon's temple. One of the great wonders of the world, ancient world, Solomon's temple before it was destroyed. And so it says, he's talking to them, and his question in verse 3 is, Who is left among you that saw this house in its first glory? So apparently they've actually laid the foundation. They have started the building. And he's going, who remembers? Who remembers that first one? The, how large it was, how beautiful it was. And then he goes, and how do you see it now? Literally his question is, is what do you think of this new one? <laughs> what do you think of this new one? And it is not in your, in your eyes in comparison as, is it not in your eyes as, as in comparison as nothing? Uh, and this is something that happens, and we need to be very careful about comparing things anyway. Uh, churches have been around for a long time and had a glory day. Everybody always remembers what it used to be like. You know, I remember when. You know, we had thousands of people in the church. We had thousands of dollars coming in every month, and we did this, and we did that. Well, you know what? That was in the past, but comparing. <laughs> and this is what he's saying. You know, you're looking at this place, and you're thinking it is nothing. And it really was nothing. The, the, this second temple, when it was first built, was nothing in comparison to Solomon's temple. By the time we get to Jesus' time, and Herod built on it and expanded, on it, it was coming close to a building that they could be really happy about. But it still was nothing in the beauty and expense of Solomon's temple. All right? But Herod had built a huge expansions on it. It was becoming a beautiful place. It had been expanded. Uh, this is what he's going to say in here, that it's going to be great. It's going to be. Uh, and he says, you look at it. You look at it. This is nothing. They did not have the gold and silver. In, in Solomon's temple, everything was covered with gold. Everything. It was made out of stone and wood, and then they covered it all with gold. Which is why when the Babylonians destroyed it, they literally took it apart brick by brick to get all the gold out of it and remove all the gold. 
in Herod's day, they put a lot of gold over the building as well, so that when the Romans burnt it down, they literally took it brick by brick apart because the gold had melted into the cracks. So they literally took the brick, you know, brick by brick apart because they wanted every last ounce of gold off that temple. But Jesus has said, no stone is going to stay, you know, stay together on that temple when it's destroyed. And it didn't have as much gold as Solomon's, but it had a lot of gold in it. And when they it melted that gold right, in, right into the Well, they did. They did. They hated the Jews too. But when they started burning the building, the, the gold melted into the rock, and and they wanted to make sure they got every bit of that gold. All right. Same reason that this Babylonians took apart the took apart Solomon's temple. They wanted every bit of that gold that had been melted in and flowed on flowed on the on the building. Uh, so and he's saying, "What do you think about this? You guys that are old, look at this building. What do you know? What do you think about this?" And they're right now they're just looking at a foundation and bottom walls of it and, and they're probably just tears we we remember what the original looked like we remember how big the original was uh, and so this is a problem again my point on this is we can't look at the past one of the things when i first started this church people always went well we used to have so much money and we used to have this we used to have that we're forward it doesn't matter what we used to be we're going to go forward and we're going what God is going to make us be today. We didn't have a 10,000 people in the town like they did you know, to start this church. We didn't have money all over the place from the miners to, to pour into this church. We're going to start with where we are and move forward with where we are. We can't go and say this is what we were. And this church has a heavy reputation. I don't want to, you know, little of the reputation at all. This church has planted churches all over this county in, in, in Nevada. It has planted churches all over the place. Maybe someday we'll get big enough to be able to really do the same thing and plant churches again. I don't know, but that's the past. So we're, now we're living in today's time and saying this is what we're doing today and not in the past. And, so, and, and Haggai is saying, you know, through God is saying, look at this, what do you think of this? Forgetting that it's God's house. Really doesn't matter what it looks like. The one that was important in that house was God. And God says, this is still going to be my house. This is going to be my house. And this is what he has done all along. When God is present and you have God on your side, it doesn't matter what else is going on. It doesn't matter how many people, how much, how little or how many. It doesn't matter how much or how little finances you have. If God's in there, he will provide what is needed. And here he's saying, look at that. You, you people, what do you think about this? Isn't it nothing? Isn't, isn't what, what you're building really nothing? And God is trying to get their attention. It's his house. And then he goes, verse 4, Yet be strong, O Zerubbabel, O, o Joshua, son of Jehoshadak, the high priest, and be strong, all you people of the land, saith the Lord, and work. For I am with you, says the Lord of hosts. He's saying, get out there and do the work. And all God asks us to do in our life is the work that he asks us to do. And this is something that I tell people all the time. Whatever God has asked you to do is what you're responsible for. 
And a lot of times we want to go, well, I can't do what so-and-so did, or I can't do, you know, I can't be a Billy Graham, so I'm just not going to try to do anything to witness to people. Well, you know what? There's not very many Billy Grahams in, the, in this world. There's not been very many Billy Grahams in all of, all of history. We're not going to be like him, and that's not what we're called to be. In smaller churches, well, I'm not like so-and-so, that teacher who teaches, you know. No, you're not, but you are you. What has God called you to do? And as long as we're faithful to what he is asking us to do, that's what's important. If all you are is a prayer warrior, and I say that very with tongue-in-cheek, you know, if that's all you are, that's probably the most important job in the church. And most people don't know who the true prayer warriors are in a church. The people who, when they pray, God answers answers. Now, God will answer all of our prayers, but there are certain people that are gifted to pray. And when they pray, God hears their voice and answers. There are people that are gifted to teach. There are people who are gifted to minister, and there's people that are gifted to encourage. Your goal is to do what God has asked you to do, not looking at somebody else and saying, well, God, I'm, I'm not like that person. How can you... How can you be thinking I'm somebody special? Pastors have a problem with this. They compare themselves to other pastors. You know, well, this pastor has more people in their church or better, better speaking than I do or this, that, and the other thing. Uh, worship leaders get irritated because they're not as good as some other, you know, somebody else. Our job is not to compare ourselves to anybody else. God doesn't. He says, this is what I asked you to do. If, you do, if you're asked to do one thing by God and you do it 100%, you're doing better than somebody who's been asked to do four or five things and did one. Maybe they did the one thing better than you thought, you know, than you thought anybody else could, but they left four things undone. You did the one thing God told you, you're in a better position than that person who didn't do the four things. So don't ever belittle yourself or think that you're not as good as somebody else because you don't know what God's asked them to do. They may end up looking really good in the one judging them by. And God says, yeah, but I gave them two other jobs that they didn't even do any of those. You know, they did that one great, but they didn't, do, they didn't even touch the other job. So don't ever be looking and saying, God, I'm not as good as somebody else because you may be better off than they are because of how little you've been asked to do. And God knows what we're capable of. You know, so always just the one person you're looking at is, God, am I doing what you've asked me to do? Am I living up to what you've asked me to do? And just know that he's going to strengthen you to do whatever he asks you to do. Sometimes it's scary. You know, first time I spoke, it's like, okay, God, do you want me to speak? Uh, no, I'm not sure that I want to do that, God. Now I have no trouble speaking in front of crowds. It's something I've learned to do over the years. But there's other things that God asks me to do, and I'm going, God, I'm not sure I'm, I want to do that. So just be aware that when you're looking at somebody thinking, well, they've got their act together, they may not have their act together as much before God as much as you think they do. Because God has standards that he's asked them to do, and, you, and you're not aware of their standards. And so we want to be very careful about that. And he's telling them, be strong and do the work. In this case, their work was real easy. Build a temple. I guess it was, if you know how to build a temple, it was easy work. Uh, I wouldn't even know where to begin, so I'd be the one hauling the rocks or something to them and the timber to them and let somebody else do it. But, but even that, you know, even in that aspect, if your job is to just hand the tools to the workers, that's a pretty big job. 
You know, that, work, that worker can stay busy doing the work if you're there handing the tools and handing the equipment up to them so that they don't have to get up and down the ladder or, or back and forth to their supplier. You're handing them. That's a big job and a big help. So we don't even want to belittle something of that nature. You know, we want to just say, God, you've given me this job. I'm doing what you've asked me to do. And don't reject what he's asking you to do because it's not big enough. Yeah. You know, we want to be very careful of that because it's real easy to say, God, I'm not the one up front, so I'm not that important. Nobody knows who I am. All I did was clean the weeds out of the property. and Nobody knows who I am. Well, that's a pretty big job, especially in our property that grows, grows all kinds of weeds. <laughs> you, know, uh, you know, but all these things come down to what is it that, that we're doing for God? Are we doing the work, no matter how big or how small it is, honoring him in all that we do so and he says according to the word that i covenanted with you when you came out of egypt so my spirit remains among you fear not what was the word that he covenanted to them i'm taking you to the promised land i'm taking you to that promised land the land that i promised your father fathers abraham isaac and jacob i'm taking you to that land here he's bringing them back to the land. And what did he say when he told him in the Sinai, build this temple and I will dwell with you. If you keep my commandments, I will bless you. You disobey my commandments, you will be, you will be disciplined, cursed. So he's going back, he's reminding them. You know, God always goes back to Egypt with the Israelites because that was the big, you know, Egypt was there July 4th, you know, for Americans. This is when they became a nation. They were taken out of Egypt in victory. Now they had a long time till they finally got to their, <laughs> to the promised land. But this was their big day, and God's all back. Remember what I did to Egypt. Egypt have you in captivity, and I destroyed them with the ten plagues. I delivered you. I went. We took you through the Red Sea, and destroyed your enemies so that you would never see them again. Over and over, he keeps reminding them all the things he did and said, I am your God. Don't fear these people because they were afraid of Egypt. You know, they were afraid to revolt against Egypt. Even though they outnumbered Egypt and could have just walked out, they had a slave mentality in their mind. And that is something that bothers people. The poor have trouble because they have allowed themselves to think inferior. The slaves thought inferior because of who they, how they were being treated. You know, there were plenty of them. You know, about three and a half million Jewish people lived in, in uh, Egypt at that time. They could have just walked out. There was no way the army could have stopped them ultimately. They were outnumbered. They were strong, but they never realized it. And this is something that happens with people. You get wrapped up thinking that you're weak. And because you think you're weak, you end up being weak. And he's saying, be strong, do the work. And he reminds them about Egypt and said, I delivered you from the Egyptians' hands. I was with you all through the wilderness. They're coming up to tabernacles. They're all thinking about the wilderness journey. Forty years in the wilderness. Three and a half million people give or take a 
couple hundred thousand, <laughs> wandering around the desert for 40 years, being given manna for food every morning, given water from the rock everywhere they go, and having quail every night for dinner. Did they build houses in those 40 years? Tents. They had their tents. That's why they celebrate tabernacles. They, it represents the tents that they dwelt in. So for 40 years, they stopped wherever God told them to stop. They stayed for however long God told them to stay. And God gave them food and water every day. Now, I'm not sure how many of you have ever tried to feed even, even 30 or 40 people. But you're out in the wilderness trying to feed 3.5 million people every day and every night, every morning and every night, and give them enough water in a desert climate. That's a lot of provisions. You know, if you ever talk to anybody who's been in charge of armies, <laughs> they'll talk about how hard it is to supply an army out in the field. We, you, hear, you hear the term supply line. That's where they run the trucks and stuff back and forth to, to be able to give them food for every single day. And it's truckloads of food every day to feed that many people. And manna was there morning except for every seventh morning because God gave you enough on the sixth day to, to have two days worth of manna. And so God is reminding them this. And they're thinking about this. This is, this is why I say they're coming up to tabernacles. They're thinking about this period of time when they were wandering in the wilderness, how God had destroyed, destroyed Egypt. Uh, and so God is bringing them to their mind. You guys think this is nothing? Think about me. Think about what I have done. They're already thinking about it. You know, they're kind of, they're, they're, they're kind of thinking about this as, as we approach Easter, Fourth of July, Thanksgiving. We approach the holiday and we remember what does this holiday stand for, hopefully. <laughs> We're supposed to remember what the holiday stand for. And their Jewish feast, they did remember what they stood for. All right. Um, so they're remembering. They're remembering the wilderness watch. They're, they're remembering what God has done to help them through all those, all those trials and tribulations. And he's reminding them, think about this. And it says, fear you not. God keeps telling us all the time, do not fear. Do not fear. Well, he's the only thing we're told to fear. And that fear is more of a reverence to, to him, but don't fear him. Uh, there's over 3,000 references to fear and terror and everything, and, and one-third of them are fear not. One-third of them are fear God, and one-third of them is they were afraid. Just a statement, not, not a moral statement, was they were afraid, they were terrified. But God says, do not fear anything but him. And you know, this is very important for us to understand. And if God is in control, and he is, he is totally sovereign, he knows what's coming in, he is in full control, he has promised that all things will work together for good, he knows that nothing is there to harm us but to do good for us. If we truly believe all of this, then what, what do we fear and why? If we truly believe God is in charge... And, and we fear him, then we don't fear any circumstance that comes our way. 
What is the worst thing that a circumstance can do is, is injure us? If it kills us, we get to go be with God. So the worst thing that any circumstance can do to us is hurt us, and God says, I've got a reason for that. Now, we don't like the idea of, you know, having uh, injury. But, you know, how many times have you heard somebody's testimony of they were able to witness to somebody and, and they turned to God because they were able to witness to them because they were at the right place because of their injury? They were at a doctor's office. They were at a hospital. They were in front of a nurse. They were in, in the room with another person who was stuck in that same room with them for a day or two that couldn't get away from them witnessing. They're, worry and fear are very, very similar. What do we worry about is we worry that we are fearful of what's coming our way, that I may not be able to handle what's coming. Um, God tells us to cast all our cares on him. So there's a very small difference between the two. So, but... The biggest thing about worry for us is if you, there's a statement that 90% of what you worry about never happens anyway. So quit worrying. So quit worrying. Because worrying, and another thing that people say is worrying is expending energy that's used to live today on things that may or may not happen tomorrow. So I'm taking my energy that should be used for living this moment and saying I'm going to worry about tomorrow. And I can't change anything. Yeah, God's in control. If I truly trust in God, I have nothing to worry about. So then you, so I shouldn't worry because I really have to be worried because God's in control. Yeah. Gonna, I'm not worried. God's going to get the words out of my mouth. <laughs> and, that, and that's truly what it is. We should not worry. We should not fear. Because worry is all about the future. And I have no, I can't even control what's, truly control what's happening in the next second. Because that is in God's hands. Now, I expect to be in the next second. I expect to finish this message. I expect to finish the, the, the brochures that I'm working on tonight for Sunday. I'm, in, I'm expecting to drive home. But you know what? My expectations may or may not happen. Who knows what God has in store for me? I make my plans. I try to execute my plans. But God may say, your plans are over. My, my father-in-law's plans ended last Sunday, you know, two, uh, two Sundays ago. He had all kinds of plans. He had doctor's appointments. He had all kinds of things that he was planning. He passed away that, on that morning, and all of his plans were gone. So for us, you know, it could be as easy as an earthquake coming in and totally demolishing this building around us, you know, so that we don't have our normal plans. It could be any number of things. And, we don't, and I don't want to scare people, but God has his plan in place and he knows what's going to happen we make plans but we do not want to expend the energy god gives us to live today in tomorrow's or next week or the year from now's worries because god's in control it's only things will come to me as it comes i have a very small window of time that i have any control over and even when, and I'm going to say now, and by the time I said now, that, got, that moment of time is gone. 
okay? I have the exact, exact millisecond that I'm living that I have any control over, and even by the time I think about that moment, it's already gone and I have no more control over it. It's all, it's what you should be doing. Because I really, like, I, I don't know Living without worry and fear is what we should be at without, when we're trusting in God. The world, the world tells us to, the world tells us to worry and fear. God says, trust him. God says, trust him. The more we trust him, the less we're going to worry, the less we're going to be fearful because all of our trust is in Him. So if you can get to the point where you're not worrying about tomorrow at all and you're in full trust with God and you're not fearful about what may or may not happen, you're in the perfect place because now you are putting your trust in God. Now the world will tell you you're just being a fool for not worrying about tomorrow, but you know, but don't listen to the world. <laughs> the world lies <laughs> all the time. And it's a good thing. And this is what God's telling, is trying to teach them here. Look at what I have done for you in the past. I am still your God. And he's touching base with them on what they're preparing. They're thinking about tabernacle. And he's saying, remember what I did. I destroyed Israel. I destroyed Egypt, rather. I brought you through the wilderness. I brought you into the promised land. Remember. Quit worrying about what you have or what you don't have. Quit worrying about what may happen. Uh, and this is very true. Told in Peter, all your cares on him for he cares for you. Jesus told us that you can't even add a cubit to your height or change the color of your hair by worry, so stop doing it. You know, he says, God, God says, I take care of the sparrows, I take care of the birds, none of them worry, none of them are are, are worried about where they're going, and I love you more than I care about them. I, I care for you more than I care about the plants with all their beauty and their plants. He goes, I care about you more than that. The problem we have is we don't understand how much God loves and cares for us. We go, God, I, you know, I don't understand how things are going to work. And, you know, we all fall into that place. Right now I'm looking at that. You know, I'm looking at, okay, you're, you're stripping away all these things. You're giving me all kinds of new expenses. And I'm going, I'm, I'm trying to trust in you, God. <laughs> I'm trying to trust in you. And it's a trial. And it's, it's not easy to live without fear and worry. Because we live in the flesh. We see potential problems coming up. And we start worrying about how am I going to deal with those problems. And forget that all I have to do is to live in today. And not even just today. This exact moment. All right? Because once time has passed, I can't change it. And so many people have a big problem in their life. They live in the past mistakes and can't get over what they've done. And they're trying to change what they done, have done and they can't. Or they're living in what may come, planning and, and conniving and making plans for what might come, and they totally lose today. There are many people that are for their retirement years. I work real hard. I'm not going to enjoy myself. I'm going to work real hard so that when I get to retirement, I'll be able to relax. 
and they get there and they find out a couple of things. Maybe the stock market wipes out their, well, wipes out their portfolio. Now they can't afford to retire the way they wanted to. God takes away their health and they can't walk around and move around the way they wanted to. So they're no longer going to go scuba diving and skydiving and all the things they thought they were going to do when they retired. Uh, you know, their kids get sick and they no longer have their kids to, to enjoy. During, you know, we put so much stock in those future days and we lose our current living. No, you were fine. I know, I'm, because I'm fine, and I'm thinking, well, well I'm, I'm not even worried, you know what I mean? And that's a good, that's the place you want to be. You're, you're living very spiritually. Not being worried about the future is very spiritual. So, all right, verse, verse six, uh, 5 was a covenant with Egypt, and he says, thus so, in verse 6, For thus saith the Lord, yet once in a little while I will shake the heavens and the earth and the sea and the dry land. It's kind of interesting. God says he's going to shake everything. And this is a very interesting thing. There's 517 years from this point to when Jesus is born, from the time these are promised. Jesus is going to be a, an event that shakes the world. Now, when he returns the next time, he's really going to shake the world. Okay? But in a philosophical or moral way, when Jesus came and Christianity was started, the world was shaken. The first event that shook the world was the fall of man. Sin entered the world and death and destruction entered into the entire world system. And the whole world was shaken by one person's sin. Jesus comes the first time and entire things are shaken. Everything is turned upside down. The world, which was becoming more and more evil up to that point, starts to be turned upside down as Christianity takes root. We have to remember that before Christianity came, people did not care about other people's lives. You got hurt in war. Maybe you'd have a friend who was really nice to you and carry you off the field, but usually it was you're not able to walk off the field Lie there and die. If, you die. if you live, you're okay. If not, you were meant to die anyway. You were too weak to live. This whole idea of we think evolution is so new, the, in, the information has been out there all the time. If you're strong, you live. If you're weak, you die. All right? All before Christianity, that was the way things were. People abandoned children. If they had too many children, they just abandoned them in the street. And, that, and no orphanages, no, nothing, nothing to take care of the kids. They just left a three-year-old out, out in the street to fight, fend for themselves. All right? Throw them in the river. We don't want them anymore. You know, they did a lot of post-abortion abortions, <laughs> post-birth abortions. They throw them in the rivers and sacrifice them to the gods. You know, there were just too many of them. They don't care. They leave them on the street. No hospitals. If you didn't have enough money to hire your own doctor then you died. You weren't strong enough to live. All of these things happened before Christianity came on the, on the face of the earth. Christianity came on the face of the earth and they actually did what the Jews were supposed to do and brought God into people's lives. They, they built orphanages. They built hospitals. They started caring for the weak and making sure that the weak were taken care of. 
as now we're drifting away from God's standards, we're seeing us return to what used to happen. You know, kill the, kill the old, kill the young. You know, they're not, you know, who cares whether they live or die? It's no big deal. Uh, you know, they're not, they're, not a, they're a drain on the economy, so just let them die. We're seeing that return. And it's, you know, it's starting very subtle. You know, it started with abortion. Let's just kill the babies. You know, we'll get rid of lots of babies because, you know, they're, you know, you know, my, my life is important to me. I can't afford to have a baby because, you know, the babies cost money and they, they keep me from having fun. I've heard this from various, various, you know, individuals. You know, they go, how did you afford to have four kids? We did. We made a lot of sacrifices. We may not have gone out to dinner as often as you did. And that's one of the problems, especially as people are pushing off having children for a long time. They get into this habit of making two income, income living, going out to dinner every week or every other week, you know, every day or whatever. And then they get a kid thrown in the mix. And that kid now is a nuisance because that kid is meaning one of them may or may not be able to work. They now can't afford to go out to dinner all the time because they've got to buy stuff for the kid. And the kids become a nuisance to them in, a, in our high leisurely world that we live in. And so now people are just saying, I just want to get rid of the kid. It's going to be nothing but trouble, so I don't want the kid. Then you get to the other side and, you know, mom and dad are getting really old and they're, they're in that nursing home and they're using, up, they're using up my inheritance. I think they should just be killed because they're using up my, they're draining, our, they're draining the family funds. And that is exactly the logic that's used on them. You might as well kill yourself because you're using up the, the allowance, you know, you're using up your kids' inheritance. If, if you keep staying here for a few more years, you won't be giving anything to your kids. Well, who said we're supposed to give anything to our kids? You know, it's nice if we can, but, you know, there's nothing that says we have to give our kids anything. Usually when, we, when kids get a big inheritance, they waste it and become spoiled anyway. Which, the ones that are worried about that were spoiled to begin with. So we have all of this stuff going on and we're seeing ourselves return to this pre-Christian world of evil, doggy dog, you know, if you're not strong enough to survive, you don't deserve to, to survive and that is what our world is becoming. The, the strong survive and the weak are made to serve the strong and it's happening and we're seeing more and more of that with each passing year. Businesses become bigger. Groups become bigger. They, you know, our government is enslaving the population by giving them money, getting them used to be dependent upon their money so that once you can get them dependent on your money, now you can tell them what to do. And, and what they'll tell you to do is not be nice and all that other stuff. They're going to tell you to do the stuff that you don't want to do, and they'll go, you owe us. We've been paying you for so long. This is why the big push in our government right now is to pay people every month just for being alive. And then after a while, it'll start with, okay, you don't have to do anything for this, but, but it'll be, there's never a free lunch when it comes to the government. There will come the time when you're going, okay, we've been giving you all this money. Now it's time to pay. Oh, you don't want to pay it all back. And at that point, if you've been living on, on their money, you don't have the money to pay back and you are stuck. We need, dig, we need ditch diggers. I don't want to be a Jew. I don't care what you want to do. I've been paying your living. You do what we tell you to do. You know, and this is what's going to come down to. And so we need to be very careful. 
It's coming down the road. When we start seeing these monthly checks, you're going to have to decide what you're going to do with it. I don't know that I want to take it because of the cost is too high. I want my trust to be in God, not the government. And this is crucial. What is our trust in? Who are we trusting? Are we trusting God or are we trusting the government? And I've seen many, especially older people that will get remarried, want to get remarried, but they know that if they get remarried, it hurts their money from their, from their social security or their, their pension funds. So we're finding a lot of older people living in fornication because they don't, their trust isn't in God, their trust is in the government to keep providing them their money. And I know it's a hard decision. Don't get me wrong. I understand it's a hard decision. But where is your trust? Who are you going to obey? And here he's saying, pay attention. I'm your God. Fear me. Don't fear the situations that you're looking at. And it's hard. It's hard not to fear situations because they're staring us in the face. We see them and we do not see God in the background moving around. All we have is his trust that he's still out there moving around. And it's that question of, do I believe? God, you said you're going to provide for me. God, you said you're going to take care of me. God, you said put my trust in you. And I'm looking at all the, that what I see by sight. And God says, what are you going to believe? Are you going to believe your eyes and what you see? Or are you going to believe what I have taught you? And it's a hard thing. It is a hard thing to get that way. You know, I tell you, and you all know, my favorite verse is Romans 8, 28. And there are times when I've gone to God and gone, God, I don't understand how any of this can be for good, but I'm holding on to it. That's where I'm at right now. God, I don't know how any of this can be for good, but I am holding on to your truth. And I try very hard not to worry about it, but it is staring me in the face, and it's hard. It's hard. And I understand. I'm, when somebody says I'm struggling with it, I understand what it is to struggle I go through those same struggles just like everybody else, and so does every other person. Goes through the struggles. There's times when it goes right. Now, those are the fun times <laughs> when you're trusting God and there's no problem. And then there's times when you're struggling with God. I know what you said, but man, it is hard looking around. And I see this, this little temple that's so much smaller and so much uglier than, than the, the previous temple. How can you be pleased with this temple that we're building you? And we look at this, and God tells him in verse 7, uh, oh, let's go back, hold on, I'm not done with that. I will shake the nations and the whole earth and seas. And in verse 7, I will shake the nations and the desire of all nations shall come. The desire of all nations is the Messiah. Okay? Now, many people think that this was fulfilled on his first coming. I think it was started on his first coming. I think the real desire of nations is when Jesus comes for the millennial kingdom and rules the world and peace comes into the world. For the first time ever since Adam and Eve sinned, peace comes to the world. Animals are returned back to their natural state of being friendly with one another, not killing one another. They will go back to the being vegetarians, eating the grass, being able to you know, the child, it says, will play at the ass nest. The, the, the lion will lay down with the lamb. The, the wolf will, you know, will lay down with the lamb. You know, and God says, here's that peaceful time. This is what the world was supposed to be like. The desire of the world. Not just us as human beings, but the desire of, of nature. 
nature was put into chaos for 6,000 years because of man's sin. Before he sinned, it was a perfect world. No storms, no destruction, no thorns, no weeds. You know, gardeners must love that. No weeds, no thorns. Uh, you know, man's sin didn't just affect man. It affected all of creation. I can almost picture God just looking down at this world and all the destructive nature and everything that's going on and going, this is not the world I created. I created a perfect place for a perfect crea uh, created man and their fall destroyed it. But two people. Two people. <laughs> two people destroyed everything. <laughs> the desire of the nations, Jesus Christ reigning is what the world, physical world, is waiting for as well as nations and mankind. That idea of peace. The utopia that's always talked about by the world. And the whole purpose of that thousand year reign of Christ is to prove one big deal. What is the thing that we hear? If we just lived in a perfect world, we'd have no problems. And nobody would have to do anything wrong in a perfect world. Well, God's going to give us a perfect world for 1,000 years, and Satan's going to be released, and we're going to see how easy man falls right back into sin, even from a perfect world that is out there. That's the last big lie of Satan, that if everything was just perfect, you, all, you as human beings would not have any problems. The age of Aquarius, the, the Nirvana coming, all these utopia stories that you have. They're all that picture of that thousand-year reign and Satan said, lying to people, if it was just perfect. You, your problems are that you don't live in a perfect world. And it's been picked up. And God said, fine, you think that a perfect world will solve all your problems? I'm going to show you that a perfect world is still not going to get your sin nature taken care of. Because the world forgets that we are sinners internally. We sin because we are sinners. <laughs> We're not sinners because we sin. We sin because deep down in my heart, I'm a sinner. That's the only reason that I don't sin is because God's building a new heart in me. And I still sin. And I'm looking forward to the day that he glorifies me and I don't have any more sin to have to, to get out. Because he said, you are now perfect. I am now making you what I said you are. We, he is sanctifying us currently and we should be doing less sin with each passing year. Because we are being sanctified and he is washing out. But Jeremiah says that our heart is deceitfully wicked above all knowledge. Who can know it? And what God is showing us is as much sin as he takes out, he just shows us there's more sin in our heart. And there comes the day when he will totally take that heart of sin out of our, out of our being and give us a heart that seeks him completely in our glorified body and that we will not have any desire to sin. No desire whatsoever to sin. That is hard to imagine because all we know is a world full of sin. And, you know, we justify so much sin. You know, well, of course, God, I attacked that person. Look at all the stuff they did to me. You know, and God's saying, no, I still don't want you attacking that person. That's not showing love. It's not showing kindness. Um, and he says, the desire of nations will come. And he says, I will fill this house with glory that has not happened 
this glory that he's talking about, when Solomon built the temple, and it was dedicated in 1 Kings chapter 8, the glory of God fell upon the temple with so much presence of God that nobody went near the temple. The shining glory of God was on the temple and nobody came near it. In Exodus chapter 40, they built the tabernacle and God descended on it and filled the place with his glory so that nobody went near the the tabernacle while God's presence was so strong in it. This temple never had that event to it. This This temple never got this glory of God put on it. The temple of Herod never had the glory of God upon it. Matter of fact, the temple of Herod did not even have the mercy seat in it that was created. They lost the mercy seat. And nobody really knows where it is. Rumors have it that it's in Ethiopia. Other rumors have it that it's buried in the catacombs of, in Jerusalem. Nobody knows officially where the Ark of the Covenant and the mercy seat are. But God says, the new temple I will fill with my glory. The one that's coming, and and I don't know that that will have the mercy seat until God comes. But God will build the third. The third temple will eventually have His glory placed on it, not the one they just get it. Not the one they are building at this moment, uh, because the because they needed it to offer their sacrifices. He said His presence would be there, but His glory never filled that temple and they never had the mercy seat to put the blood on so even on Yom Kippur they were never doing the they were killing the, the, the lamb but they did not have I don't know what they had in there they, obviously they put something in there so they could put the blood on it but it wasn't the Ark of the Covenant and the mercy seat and so we don't know what it was because only one person was allowed in it one time a year so only one person ever saw what was inside that inside that place in the Holy of Holies, until Jesus died. And if you remember the event that happened when Jesus died, the curtain to the temple between the holy place and the Holy of Holies was torn from top to bottom. And now people had access to the Holy of Holies. Now I'm sure the Jews immediately put the curtain back together, put something up real quick to block that. But God said, I have broken the dividing wall. We have the opportunity as Christians to come into the presence of God and worship Him and present our pleas to Him directly. The Jewish people never understood that. You went to the priest and the priest gave your offering and sacrifice, but you never got to go directly to God in their, in their normal mindset. Now there were David and Solomon and people that understood that they could pray to God. But for most Jewish people, they did not understand that you could go to the presence of God. But we truly have it because of the sacrifice of Christ. We can go into the presence of God and let our requests be known. We are his children, literally. And the child has access to their father. Even if their father is king or president or ruler of the world, their child has access to their father. We have access to the ruler of all 
universe and nations. And the whole world and all the universe, we are his child and can go into his presence and make our request known. You know, how much greater is that? You know, you're the king of the, the, the president, the kid of the president, big deal. I'm the, I'm the, I, I'm the child of the, the, the ruler of all the, not just this universe, but all the universes. I'm his child, and I can go into his presence and ask what I want. The beauty of that thing that we have is so lost on us at times that we sometimes forget how powerful God is and how big he is. You know, verse 8 says, the silver is mine, the gold is mine. You know, I'm not worried about the fact that there's no gold and silver, and he goes, I own it anyway. He goes, I don't need what you have. And this is why we, we want people to understand, God does not need what we can give him. He technically doesn't even need us. He allows us to serve him out of his mercy and, and love for us, but he really doesn't need us. When Hezekiah was being under attack by the Assyrians, God sent one angel to destroy 187,000 men. He didn't need a single fighting man in, in the army. He just said, oh, let, let's just kill them all. It didn't need help opening the Red Sea. He didn't need help opening the Jordan River at flood stage. He just did it. During Revelation, there's an angel, it says, that flies around the world proclaiming the gospel of Christ. He doesn't need us even to proclaim the gospel if he wanted to. He can just put dreams and angels in front of people. He gives us the pleasure and the honor of being the evangelists. This is the beauty of what God says. He goes, I own everything. I own everything. I don't need your gifts. Why does he ask for our tithes and offerings? Not because he needs the money. But he says, I want you to learn to trust me and honor me with your tithes and offerings so that now I can bless you and you get a blessing to the, you get to be a blessing to somebody else and he gets to bless you for your giving. <laughs> Well, he already knows what you're going to give to him. He's, his work... It's not even so much that. His goal is to see how much are you going to trust him. Do I trust him to give of my, what I think are my resources, to him and allow him to work through me? Because every one of us knows that if you start tithing... You can find all the reasons you could use that 10% of money. If God asks you to tithe, do more than the tithe, you can really quickly come up with uh, how much more can I, you know, how, you know, God, you know, all you asked for is the 10%. And this is what I go every through, the attack that I go through every once, because I'm well above 10%. Every once in a while, it hits my mind. You go, uh, money's a little tight. If I, God, if I just gave you the, the minimum that you asked for, I could use this to pay off some bills. And I'm going, no, where did that thought come from? You know, and I know darn well that came from Satan, but it is true. You know, the extra amount of money that I go could pay off a lot of my bills. But God and I have agreed to pay a certain amount, and that's what we're going to keep paying, that I'm going to keep paying him. Because he has made blessings. Ultimately, even though I'm going through things right now, I know that God's going to provide. 
because he always has. And, you know, it's suffering, and sometimes I'll look at it by sight and say, God, what's going on? But I know he's going to provide. In the long run, he is going to make everything happen because he always has. And because he always has and he doesn't change, he always will. But there is those temptations, and, I, and, I, and I'm not immune to them. I'm not immune to them. God says, well, you know, you know this is what you and I are, you have agreed to do, and then Satan comes along. Well, you know, God's, God only asked for 10%, so you could, you could cut back and take that extra amount and, and, and use it for, to, to do these things. Take care of this. You know what? My agreement with God is a lot higher, so I think that my tithe and my offerings are mandatory at that higher level. You know, the attack is trying to say, this is all you need to do. God allows us to go through a lot of trials, and Satan always will try to test us by getting us to accept, to accept the good rather than the best. If I was to drop back to the minimum on that offering, then God would say, okay, you've accepted good, but you didn't accept the best that I had out there for you. Satan oftentimes knows if he can't stop somebody, if he can't stop from somebody from being a Christian, then his next step is to get them just to be sitting in a pew and doing nothing. You know what he tries to do a lot of times if, you, if he can't keep you from getting in the pew and doing nothing? He'll try to get you to do everything. And get so busy that you're not doing anything good and you burn out. And then you go back to either doing nothing or not even staying in the church. Or at the very least, you're so busy doing jobs half-baked that you don't get to do anything good. And this is very important for us. And this is why we go back to what I started with. What has God called you to do? Do what he has called you to do. Don't try to do everything in the church. Uh, there's no way I'm going to try to do everything in the church. I would burn myself out so fast it wouldn't, wouldn't be worth it. You'd have a pastor that would be ready to quit because I'm trying to do everything. So our goal as we go forward with him is, God, what is it you want, do you want me to do? How do you want me to serve you? And then the last verse that we read in this paragraph was, The glory of this latter house shall be greater than the former, saith the Lord of hosts, and in this place will I give peace, saith the Lord of hosts. This is not talking about the one they're building. Yeah, I got that. Okay, this is talking about the future one that God himself will dwell. When Jesus is in the millennial kingdom and peace rules the world, such peace that only God can give. And there will be sacrifices during that period of time. We'll be giving Thanksgiving sacrifices. And if you need to know, go back to the Old Testament to know what a Thanksgiving is. But I love it. Uh, there was one pastor who described Thanksgiving sacrifice as a picnic with God. You took the animal to the priest. You gave about a third of it went to God. A shoulder of the animal went to the priest. You took the rest of it. You cooked it. You had a great big party with your family and friends because you had to eat it within 24 to 48 hours, depending on what reason you were giving it. So you had had a great big party because you wanted to get rid of that food as fast as possible because you only had a short time to eat the entire, the entire bullock or half the bullock uh, so, or sheep or whatever. You had just a short period of time, so you just had a great big feast. And you have a party saying, we're celebrating. This is our Thanksgiving offering. So during the Millennial Kingdom, there are going to be Thanksgiving offering. There are going to be parties all over the place where people are eating these big feasts 
of thanksgiving to God and celebrating with everybody because you only have a minimal time to, to eat the entire sacrifice. And everybody's coming to Jerusalem to make these sacrifices. And you don't have to have the uh, Yom Kippur sacrifice because Jesus is that sacrifice. You don't have to have the Passover sacrifice. He was the Passover sacrifice. But you will have some of the other sacrifices, thanksgiving, peace offerings. And all of those ones you got to participate in. You get to eat a portion of the, the food that you offered. The burnt offering may still be out there because it was, a, it was an offering of total dedication to God. So that one may still also be then. That offering was totally burnt up on the, on the altar except for the small piece that the, the, uh, the skin, the, 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 uh, the pelt. <laughs> it's not the right term, but the outside was given to the, the skin of it was given to the, uh, the hide. That's the right word. The hide was given to the, to the priest, and they, that was part of their pay for that particular sacrifice, and you burnt the whole offering. It was a picture of dedication toward God. I'm totally giving you my entire life, and here's my substitute for that so to show you what I'm doing. The Thanksgiving offering where it's a, God, we're going to have a party. I'm just being so thankful. You get, you get your portion that's going to burn. The priests are going to get their, person, their portion, and we're going to have a party at my, at my house with all my friends and neighbors. Those, those type of offerings will still go on during the Millennial Kingdom. So there's going to be a time where worship is going on and people are going to do it freely. And there are going to be people that aren't wanting to follow him, that are, that are struggling with it. But they're going to be in the middle of peace with God ruling with an iron rod and keeping peace. And then Satan comes along and says, uh, well, you don't need to follow God, follow me. I've got a better way for you. He's going to use the same logic he did 7,000 years earlier with the angels when he led a third of the angels out of heaven in rebellion of God, against God. And we don't know, it doesn't tell us how many he's going to lead astray at the end of the millennial kingdom. But it's going to be a huge army that comes against God for the last battle, the last proof that just even living in a perfect life is not of environment is not going to keep you sinless. It's so easy for humans to deceive themselves and somehow think that God does not know. We do it too sometimes. When, when we're not trusting God, we're going, God, you know, I'm here. I see what's coming. You don't know what's coming. How arrogant that is. We don't literally say it that way. But isn't that what we're saying when we go, God, you know, uh, if you just knew what I was going through, you would know that your way isn't the right way. You know, what are we telling God? God, you really don't know what's going on. I'm not trusting you. Now, we don't put it that way because we wouldn't be that bold to tell God he doesn't know what he's talking about, but our actions speak louder than our words. And our actions say, God, you don't know what's going on, and I do. You know, so we need to be careful. All right, let's close in prayer. I went a little over, sorry. Lord, we thank you for this evening. We thank you for how much you love us, Lord. We ask you to help us to learn to trust you with our whole heart and always seek after you and to fall into what you want us to do. And we just thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Listening, friends, where will you be when you die? We ask this question of a lot of people oftentimes, and the biggest answer we'll get is, I hope I will be in heaven. If hope is your answer, you don't know God, and this is a problem. We all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. The wages of the sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life. 
If you do not know for sure that you're going to go into heaven, please today make your decision to follow him. It is simply just ask him, Lord, I am a sinner. Please come into my life and save me and make him your Lord. If you've said that prayer, let us know so that we can send you a new believers packet. You can contact us at office at chloridebaptistchurch.com or even pastor at chloridebaptistchurch.com or you can just send us a regular letter at Chloride Baptist Church, P.O. Box 65, Chloride, Arizona, 86431. Thank you very much for listening and have a wonderful day.